Welcome to the Dentist Business Panel. We all know that being a dentist is more than just the clinical side. Dentists have to be savvy on the business side as well. Whether it's managing team members or tracking your KPIs, the business of dentistry is just as important as the clinical side. This panel is going to bring us the best practices when it comes to the business of dentistry. The panel is moderated by the hosts of Dental Unfiltered, Dr. Andrew Velo and Matthew Brown. Dr. Velo is a highly successful dentist with a deep understanding of dentistry. With thriving practices, he stays up to date on the latest advancements and offers exceptional patient care. Matt Brown is a dental marketing and sales expert with a wealth of experience in the industry. His tailored strategies have helped numerous dental practices achieve growth and success. Joining them on stage as panelists are Dr. Hendrik Lai, a seasoned management consultant and speaker. He is highly sought after for his expertise in strategy development, process optimization, and organizational change. Kara Kelly is a dental HR consultant who loves sharing her knowledge of the business side of dentistry. She's the founder and CEO of Clinical HR LLC, an advisory firm for dental and medical practices. And last but not least, Dwayne Tinker, a.k.a. The Tooth Cop. He is the CEO of Dental Compliance Specialist. Dwayne is dedicated to helping dental professionals comply with the law and to protect their licenses. Let's give a round of applause for the Dental Business Panel. Thank you all for being here. Me and uh, Andrew Vallow will be moderating the uh, panel. We're the co-hosts of um, Dental Unfiltered, the podcast. I'm also co-founder of Energize Group. We're going to work it from that end to this end for the questions. So um, first, I want to give the panel a chance to, to introduce who they are and where their positions are in the industry and what they do. So I'll start with Hendrik on the end, and we'll work away there from here. Yeah, thank you very much. So my name is Hendrik Lai. I'm the managing partner at Sage Consulting. I work primarily um, in the area of business strategy as well as process optimization. Um, I work in dental, I work in medical, health and beauty, oil and gas exploration and uh, aerospace technology. So I have a fairly broad sort of range of, um, of capabilities and experience in the industry. All right, I'm Genevieve Poppy. I'm a dental practice management consultant. I work with uh, anywhere from single practices to emerging groups across the country. And um, I like to say I'm an enthusiastic change agent. I work with helping doctors achieve their vision and actually get it uh, to operating the way they hoped it would when they bought it. Yeah. Dwayne Tinker, the tooth cop. I'm a compliance guy. Not because I like rules and regulations. Frankly, I think they suck, but I love the people I work with. Uh, I used to be an enforcement agent for the government. I woke up one day and said, man, I'm on the wrong team. So now I work with dental practices and DSOs to help them put into systems to prevent the very uh, problems they used to investigate and help them to be more efficient with their compliance and risk management strategies. So, I'm Karen Kelly. I'm the CEO of Clinical HR. Uh, I've been working with practices for about 12 years now. I started working at a dental CPA firm, which is how I got into dentistry. And uh, from there, just kind of fell in love with the HR side of it. So I typically work with HR compliance, uh, developing policies and procedures, employee handbooks, things like that, total compensation, and then, of course, employee relations, which is the fun stuff gives me all the stories. <laughs> hey guys, I'm Andrew Vallow. I uh, have some startups in Tampa. We're actually opening startups number three and four on Monday, so it's been a very busy week for me. Um, I also co-host the Dental Unfiltered pod podcast here with my co-host Matt, and I'm excited to talk to you guys about dental business. So my first question for you guys is, we're coming from 23 to 2024. 23, we saw interest rates. We've seen um, 
you know, the rise of inflation the last few years. If you stand in a Walmart right now, you listen to the food aisle, you'll hear families hunting for great value brand items. And my question is to you guys, how do you think it's going to impact dental practices going through 2024 on the front lines of the practice? What, what impact are they going to see from this kind of constraint, this tightness on families in the marketplace? I'm going to start with Hendrick first and work our way down. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, you know, I think that this macroeconomic environment that we're beginning to sort of find ourselves in, it's, uh, you know, partially driven by this rise of inflation. We're also seeing in increased industry consolidation. So, you know, the one of the big changes that we are going to see associated with this increased cost of capital, increased inflation rates, uh, increased interest rates, is that um, because dentistry is a discretionary spend, so you know, no, no one's ever died from missing a tooth, right? You know, you can miss a front tooth. It, yes, it looks kind of ordinary, but it's not like losing an arm or a leg. So, you know, the, one of the changes that we're going to expect to see is how does dentistry compete as a discretionary spend against the latest iPhone, you know, the Rolex watch, you know, the vacation to Mexico. So what we're going to have to be able to do at the front line is really, really articulate a value proposition to our, um, to our patients to be able to sort of say, hey, rather than spending that $5,000 on a trip to Mexico or a new iPhone, you know, you really need to spend it on a tooth. You know, we need to make dentistry aspirational rather than, you know, seeing it as a... Um, I guess an essential spend because you know for most people dentistry is not an essential spend you know very very rarely is somebody going to notice that they're missing an upper first molar you know it's it doesn't impair function it you know for the most part is not aesthetic but you know to us as dentists we have to remember that there's a, a body attached to that mouth so it's really you know I guess in terms of how we drive things forward it's understanding that there's going to be increased objections associated with cost and we're going to have to be able to offer appropriate solutions to those objections now whether that's increased utilization of third-party financing you know like your care credits like your cherries or whether it's implementation of membership plans within our um, offices to reduce costs and again articulate that value proposition yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I guess piggybacking on that, I, I think the thing that just really practically I'm working with a lot of offices on is evaluating what they're offering for payment options. Um, I love care credit. I, I've used them for many years, but you have to have multiple solutions with subprime options that are easy for people to sign up for. And beyond that, you have to get your teams exceptionally comfortable at talking about money. Um, I think dental teams really, really struggle at money conversations. They're very passive about it. Uh, the number of brochures we hand to people and let them walk out the door, it's, it's problematic. And so I really like some of the new options out there that are um, more installment loan style where we can do a really low payment. It's not a credit card. There's no risk to the credit to apply for it. Um, and that paired with people who are confident in helping people uh, you know, proceed with care instead of explain insurance is really what's necessary to get that, that care going for your offices. I'm just going to interject real quick before we move on. I, I just want to mention, I think she said something really important. So uh, most of our team members are really nervous to talk to patients about money. Mm -hmm. I've, I have found it's essential that you have a designated treatment coordinator who is comfortable talking about large amounts of money, especially for my implant focused offices where most of the treatment plans are $10,000, $20,000, $30,000. Not everyone can talk about that. I mean, they just, unfortunately, there's some things that you can't teach. And if you just don't have that comfort level, they're going to struggle to sell that treatment. So I, I think that's key. That, that made a big difference for my practices because we used to let anyone present treatment. 
And now the treatment coordinator only presents treatment over a certain dollar value. So. Right. I, I completely agree. If you're doing any sort of big case dentistry, you need a dedicated treatment coordinator uh, who's comfortable with money, who can sit in the uncomfortable conversations. I tell people a story that I once called a girl's grandma to get her to co-sign for care credit. Um, and they think that's so forward of me, but also I look at it as having helped that girl proceed with the treatment that she needed. And so not everybody's cut out for that. Um, but I think that we, I think dentists and dental people sell ourselves the story that if people don't proceed, they didn't value it. And I, I think that's just an excuse for something that we're bad at as an industry. That's great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I got to back up pre-2023. Let's look back to 2020. Mm-hmm. It's election year, guys. And keeping the politics aside, but it is what it is. You know, in political year, I mean, we look back to 2020, man, things went haywire that none of us would have predicted. I think the biggest thing that we all suffered from was lack of contingency plans. And in the years since then, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. You know, a lot of states have now allowed for, like, mobile dentistry. I think people need to look ahead, review their contingency plans, look at for how they could be efficient if we get shut down again. Because I don't know what's going to happen this year, but maybe there's a repeat in play. I don't know, but I think people would be wise to, to make sure that whatever plans they have and whatever connections and abilities they have to serve their patients for whatever happens, um, that they make sure that their systems are tested so we can move forward. So I actually take this question from the team approach, because whatever is affecting your patients is also affecting your team members. Um, a lot of them being paid at the same pay scale that your, your patients are. And so... If you are noticing that your team members um, are complaining more about pay, if they have been looking at other offices to go work for, it's it's because they're making a business decision for themselves. If you haven't given them a raise, if you haven't evaluated your market value of your pay skills, and when I say market value, I do not mean BLS's information from last year. That is outdated. <laughs> um, salary.com, that is likely outdated. It's also employee reported. Uh, I mean, go to Indeed, go to Dental Post, go and look at what those jobs are going for right now. That's the market value. That's exactly what your team is seeing. And analyze that and see if your, your team uh, pay falls within that range. Because if it doesn't, you have team members who may be looking to leave. And it's not because they don't love working there or they don't love the job. It's because they're priced out of, out of that job. If they can go make 4 or $5 more an hour doing the same work, they may very well do that given the way that the economy is because they have to make business decisions for their family just like you're making a business decision for your practice. I think that's a very good point, Kara. And uh, again, I'm going to piggyback real quick, guys. Uh, so our offices, we do pay competitively for the area because our teams are very important. Uh, but beyond that, we also, I'm a big believer in incentives. So, you know, I, as, as a dentist, when I first graduated, I was in public health. I was paid on a salary. I was motivated to, to give good dental care, but I wasn't motivated to do more treatment or see more patients than I had to because it didn't impact how much money I was making. So patient shows up late, see on the day, I want to get out of there. I want to go golfing. I realized as an associate when I started getting paid on production that all of a sudden that patient shows up late with a cracked tooth and, and needs a root canal. We're not scheduling them back. We're doing it right then and there. So uh, we, you know, for most of us, we are paying our associates on production. They are motivated. They want to do as much treatment as possible. Uh, they're willing to stay late. But what about the rest of the team? You know, the, the rest of the team, if there's no bonus incentives, they're not motivated to, same, to flip same day treatment. They're not motivated to stay late to help out that patient. So all of our offices, we have uh, bonus systems in place every single month. It's based on office production, 
as a percentage of payroll. We want our payroll at a certain percentage point. So as long as our production is over that threshold, we split some of the quote unquote profit. It's not truly profit sharing, but it's kind of that in a sense. And so that way our team is always motivated to close treatment all the time because it's gonna mean more bonus for them. So that's that's been huge for the growth of my practices. If you don't have bonus systems in place, it's something I would at least think about. You know, it's funny with the, the financial conversation, it's kind of like dental anxiety meets financial anxiety with two people at the chair and the psychologies are so different. And I do a lot of coaching on this side with the case presentation. Sometimes that person that has that financial anxiety, they're putting themselves in that patient's shoes. And what really happens is that we have to reframe at least my experience is if all of us are dental professionals, our job is to do what's best for the patient all the time, no matter what. What's best for the patient all the time, no matter what, is to get ahead of the dental problem. So what's best for the patient is that uncomfortable conversation to present the largest number to get as much work done as soon as possible to actually get ahead of the dental problem and solve it. And sometimes I find the case presenter or whoever's presenting, that number is so intimidating, I think they lose sight of that target. And sometimes you have to retarget that and say, listen, really asking this number is what's best for them. And maybe even if it's not care credit or another option, offering this high interest financing option, maybe the only way they ever get their smile back. And you deny, you're denying memories and a better quality of life. And sometimes when you paint it that way, I find they get over that hump and realize that things that are hard to do with the patient are actually the most high value things. Okay. So my next question for the panel is, and we have a diverse group here that's from different segments of the market. So I'm trying to make sure I cater the questions as much as I can. Go, going into this year, you know, I think any one of us, if we opened up our practice management software, we opened up Dental Intel, we could find like these few small areas that if we advise that practice, they could change this one thing and pick up 10 or 15 or $20,000 a month by just correcting one thing. Each of you kind of have a different point of view. Going into this year, if you could tell a practice, you know, not having to buy another service, not having to spend money out of pocket, these are like the low hanging fruit or missed profit centers in the practice most missed. Where would you tell them to look? I'll start with Hendrik again. Yeah, so I probably look at it less from a profit center standpoint and more of a cost center standpoint. So my background is really not dealing with individual offices at the office level. It's uh, working with you know the management companies and large DSOs, uh, large private equity backed groups. So you know one of the areas that I'm really advising people around now is to look at what their cost of goods sold is and to actually understand what their gross profit is. So gross profit um, for those who aren't finance people is you know your your collections or your revenue, lest your variable costs. So, you know, in, in dental, that'll be your labs, your dental supplies. Um, everything else would typically be an operating expense. So people need to understand, you know, what portion of their variable costs um, is associated with their overall costs. And, you know, how do we, how do we sort of maximize and optimize um, gross profitability with an understanding that our operating expenses are, are going to be fixed costs. So what we want to do is that we want to move as many of those variable costs to fixed costs. So, you know, how do we how do we now begin to sort of reduce lab spend? You know, one of the things that we think about would be maybe bringing um, our lab in-house, investing in CAD CAM technology. You know, again, reducing those variable costs and moving those towards your, um, your fixed cost base because once you overcome the fixed costs, it all becomes profit that falls to the bottom line. So, you know, those things that we want to look at is, do we need, can we outsource where possible? Can we insource depending on, you know, the specifics of your, of your business? You know, is there a way that we can, um, you know, create our own supplies? Is there a way that we can work with manufacturers to um, enter a joint venture with supplies? Again, optimizing the variable costs to make them fixed costs. 
That's a, a really good point. I find very often dentists have no idea what the cost basis for the procedures they're doing is. I was just in an, what was that? Vancouver. Better? I, actually, I'm supposed to hold it under my neck with this one. It's <laughs> better. So um, I was just with an oral surgery group where the oral surgeons have added a periodontist into their mix to do some soft tissue stuff. And because they were oral surgeons, they admitted that basically they have no idea if any of the procedures she's doing in office are making money. She's been there like two years. <laughs> going on a long time. So um, they, they had no idea, you know, like what to appropriately charge for her codes and her grafting and the materials she uses are very expensive because their materials went way up. And so their project after I left is obviously to investigate that. So that's a, a super relevant point. And it happens not just in big groups, but I mean, just every everyday offices. Uh, the thing that I always kind of point to in terms of one of the, in my opinion, easiest things to fix, which kind of circles back to the case acceptance thing, is that noticing the difference between, and my DI people know this, this is my favorite metric, the difference between patient acceptance percentage and dollars acceptance percentage. Um, so many dental offices have dentists that teach them to be obsessed with filling the schedule instead of filling the schedule to production. Um, and so, and, they, and because they're happy that that patient scheduled something, they feel like their case acceptance is very high, but what they're actually getting scheduled is, let's just start with that filling while we pre-off the crown. So just getting um, a little bit more intentional about schedule management, really blocking productive scheduling, which sounds like I'm talking about 20 years ago dentistry, it still doesn't happen in, in most offices. Dwayne? I think a lot of it comes down to process efficiency, kind of mm -hmm. piggyback off of you two, not selling a broken record or anything. But there's, there's a lot of opportunities in dental practices, and I think people, dentists just need to get in the habit of just figuring out what systems they have and, and to schedule out, you know, how they're going to reevaluate their systems every year, what needs to be optimized, what's working, what's not working, and review each of their systems on a, on a periodic basis so they're not reviewing all their systems at one time. It's not overwhelming to have the latitude to make some changes. Um, and they can really get into the nuts and bolts of things, you know? The, the government's broke, the insurance companies are broke. I'm hearing from a lot of dentists that there's a lot of, that there, there's a lot of payment issues with insurance companies. Insurance sucks. Um, but the best thing we can do is be as efficient as we can, minimize our denials and maximize our, you know, claims processing adjudication. So the way that happens, though, is having periodically reviewing our systems. Make sure that, you know, the processes that we think we have are actually working. Are we actually getting consent for treatment? Are we utilizing treatment plans? Are they being updated as treatment changes? Uh, those are all things that's, that feed into claims denials and recoupments. Uh, I'm hearing insurance companies that are auditing more than ever, and the you know, they're finding a lot of issues with dental records. Um, you know, take some time, make sure your systems are working and that your staff gets the importance of it, so. Well, and building on that, uh, making sure your team is getting the training that they need. I know we have so many team members that get hired and they don't have anything that they learn in the first three or four weeks. And we wonder why they're not productive at the end of 30 days. And I see Laura Nelson back there giving me a cheer. I love that. See, <laughs> um, you know, turnover is expensive. Turnover costs you 25 to 35 percent of what an annual salary is, conservatively speaking, for a lower level employee. Um, and if you're looking at producers, if you're looking at associates, it can be up to 200 percent of, of their annual salary and lost production, depending on how long that position goes unfilled. So you have your recruiting costs, you have the expenses of onboarding and training, um, and then 
you lose all of that whenever you have somebody that leaves. And so whenever people come on board, have an actual onboarding process that's separate than the training process, but making sure that they're really becoming part of your culture and getting the training that they need to stay and be productive as soon as possible, rather than us just kind of willy-nilly hiring people and hoping that they're going to work out just because we get a little desperate sometimes when the market gets slow. And I've seen a lot of that over the last couple of years. I think that's still going to unfortunately continue uh, in 2024 to some extent. But making sure that we have a process for that, a system for getting our team integrated as soon as possible. Um, and some of that comes down to, to little tiny tweaks and things like benefits. Uh, I have a lot of dental practices at a lot of employee handbooks, so I see a lot of, a lot of benefits here. Um, and one of the things I'll see is that they offer dental benefits to the team after 90 days. Okay, if you look at how Ritz-Carlton hires their team, it doesn't matter if you're the janitor or the CEO, as soon as you get hired on board, you get to spend a, a night at the Ritz and you get to see that patient or the customer experience from their perspective. But we're telling our team when they come on board, we don't even wanna do a profi for you for 90 days. Why not during that first week offer them the opportunity to come in and experience what this practice can do and how the patient experience should be? That's gonna give them a lot better idea of what service they should be providing to the people coming through your door, the people that you're serving, uh, rather than us trying to nickel and dime it and saying, well, they've not been here long enough for that. I, I can't spare an hour for a profi for them, or I can't spare $100 for a set of scrubs for them. Let's make them wait 90 days to feel like part of the team and, and they can wear the Walmart scrubs until I can feel like I can spend my $100 on them. Little things like that that add up to big results when they acclimate to the culture more quickly and they stay longer is big ROI in the long run. So, Carrie, you talked about not leaving onboarding to chance, you know, ma making sure that you actually have systems in place to properly onboard your team members. And I think that's super important. Uh, I would say also don't leave the day to day uh, appointments to chance either, because, you know, I realized over time that while there were expectations of like, this is how we end an appointment, this is how we do a handoff, this is how we walk patients up, this is how we pre-appoint hygiene, it just wasn't happening like it was supposed to. And so eventually what I did is I created our own customized routing slip. And that routing slip has a bunch of check, there's like five or six check boxes on it, and the team has to actually physically check off each check box before they bring the patient up. And one of the most important things on there is, is the patient scheduled for their next hygiene appointment? Because we, someone talked about earlier today, but hygiene pre-appointment percentage, that's one of the biggest things that can make or break your practice. If you're just not reappointing your patients, I mean, your, your patient attrition is going through the roof. You have open holes in hygiene. You need more new patients. You spend more money on marketing. Um, you know, I, I talked to my team at one of our offices. We had 7,410 appointments last year. And we talked about what adding just a little bit to each appointment could do, how, how little things can make a big difference, and how adding a $30 of fluoride to 7,400 appointments could be $220,000 in additional you know, pr production for the practice. Um, so I think that's, that's huge. You, just, you can't leave things to chance. You gotta make sure that you have systems in place. Uh, other things that are on our checklist are things like, is the patient scheduled for their next restorative appointment? Was the patient asked, does anyone else in your family need another appointment scheduled? Was a patient asked, do you need any more of our $50 referral cards? So like just the little things that you want your team doing, you can't just leave it up to chance that they're going to do it. You have to make sure there's a system in place that's ensuring that's actually going to happen. Yeah, failures and systems and processes, I actually feel really bad for dentists in this area. So you go to a practice and this guy's like clinical tun tunnel vision all day, like over top of somebody. I mean, so tunnel vision physically wearing a microscope most of the time, right? Then the end of the day comes and it's like, there's some kind of business mess and he has to be the business leader now and the poor guy's exhausted. And it, it since the process just break down, I have, I have an example, we, we had a practice um, that was out Midwest and 
they were having this collections problem and like it couldn't be solved. Like the office manager's like, I'm looking through insurance, I'm looking through this, looking at all the service problems and we're trying to grow the practice and incrementally grow the practice and it's just not happening. And I finally got frustrated. I was like, I'll just fly out there. And I did, I just stood there for the day and watched. And, and the problem was so stupid and we figured it out, like everyone was dumbfounded. They weren't collecting patient portion. And the reason why was bizarre. The assistants were saying, okay, you're good to go home. And people were walking out. They weren't saying, go check out the front desk. And it was like, I'm, you know, hundreds of miles away on the East Coast. And we're trying to solve this problem. And I got so frustrated. I was like, I'll just come. I'll be there. Something is off. And all these people, because just by the end of the day, they're so tired and drawn out that it's hard to get attention to that. And one thing I think happens too, that tunnel vision is there'll be a goal of like, I want to grow from 100K to 150K a month. But what happens, I find, is Doc wants that goal, gets tunnel vision on clinical stuff, can't convey that goal properly to the staff, and then create a process to do it. And the staff is used to working at the pace and efforts of 100K a month, right? And we have to do different things to get to 150K. And that takes the business leader, the doc putting on that hat to do it, but if they're so tired they can't. I find like that's where the breakdown of all the systems and processes really happens, right? Hendrick, you lifted your uh, microphone a couple times. Did you have something to add earlier? Yeah, it was just... You split the switch up, Hendrick. There. This is the stand. You don't need it. Yeah, I was just going to um, sort of mention that process efficiency that you were talking about. Um, you know, I, I love processes. I think they're very, very important. But one of the things that has to be mentioned is that processes without some sort of audit, without ensuring that the process is followed, it's, it's absolutely useless. It's kind of like data, right? You know, data for the sake of data, not really useful. You know, what's valuable is the action you can take from data. So, you know, I, I walk into offices that have, you know, operations manuals that are that thick that somebody's taken months and months and months and spend thousands of dollars to um to you know to, to write and it just lives in a in drawer you know and no one's actually making sure people follow the process you know it, it's it, more often than not it'd say hey this is how we've always done it um even though the process is is flawed it's broken um you've got to ensure that there's accountability behind the process to ensure that the process is followed yes. Sorry, can I add on? Okay. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, processes are great, um, but if nobody's doing them, obviously they, they don't matter. I think that by and large, and the reason I have a job doing what I do is that dental offices across the country are remarkably low accountability environments, right? We, we like to build a family in our offices and families are highly dysfunctional, at least mine is. Um, and <laughs> that's what we, we seek to replicate in our environments, but they're not performance driven at all. I always joke that like being a dental hygienist is the only job I know of where you can just expressly not do what you're asked to for the 17th time and keep your job, right? Like when we have the same meeting on repeat and we do the yes. same thing. And to your point, you know, doctors are tired and I think sometimes they hold on to that leadership and management and accountability role way too long. And the managers we produce in dental offices are basically the person who's the best at insurance and dentrix. They're not people managers. We have a real deficiency of people management in our industry, uh, and hence exceedingly low accountability. Dwayne? Well, one of the concerns I see is the doctors go to a conference and they get a new shiny object mm -hmm. that grabs their attention, and they come back to the staff Monday morning, and the staff's like, oh, dear Lord. Um, they're not involved in the decision, the process, the, the, the whiz-bang to contribute to their processes, policies, and procedures that just kind of crammed down their throat. And that doesn't really open people up to re reception. 
So just a thought. Oh, you're getting some balance and buy-in for your team? Right. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing I wanted to build on what Jen said is, is getting those processes documented, whether that's in an SOP or a lot of times I, I see so many things that aren't captured in an employee handbook, for example. I'll see them be like okay. five to 18 pages long, and there's no way that all of your policies can really get captured where everybody's literally on the same page uh, in an 18-page employee handbook. They need to be far more comprehensive. They need to be done by a professional, in my opinion. Um, I have seen, oh, I have a, like a whole presentation on this, seen office manager groups, dental groups, where there are some myths that get uh, shared and that just will not die. Myths about, oh, well, you know, we can tell our team members that they can't talk about their pay as long as we put it in their employee handbook. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's that's not a thing. That's like an 85-year-old law. We shouldn't be discussing this. It's not even up for debate at this point. Um, but, but somebody at some point thought it was a good idea, and it gets shared around social media or gets shared around conferences, and so we end up with a lot of uh, policies that are in our documents that shouldn't be, and some that are drastically missing. You know, if you have an updated these documents in three or four years or pre-pandemic, all of these processes and systems that y'all are trying to get your team on board with aren't being captured and it's hard to maintain that consistency and accountability when you have nothing in writing. And so however you choose to document that, whether it's doing videos to capture some of the processes, whether it's doing your employee handbook to capture some of the policies that you have, uh, it needs to be captured somewhere so that your team has access to it and everybody can literally be on the same page. That's great. So it's really interesting. You mentioned about the investment built up by a shiny new thing, Dwayne. I feel like docs might not like this statement. I find that docs sometimes misconstrued what a practice is. And a practice is not CBT's lasers and drills and cool gear. A practice is a compassionate team of people providing care to others. And they miss, they'll, they'll, they'll buy $300,000 of lab equipment, right? But like carve out time to lead your team they start equating the hours and going, well, this is this much lost, lost, lost production time. They have a mentality, if I shut down the practice three hours, that costs this much, I can't do it, but I'll buy this lab equipment. And it's like, the, if you wanna really invest in the practice, it's the compassionate team of people to provide care to others, not equipment, because the equipment's useless without the people. I come from a military background, the special operations community, and we believe in investing in people over equipment, because people operate the equipment, right? So I totally get what you're saying. I've seen it so many times where Doc said, does that. Good. Uh, I just want to piggyback real quick there, Matt. So uh, I, I agree. I think as dentists, as business owners, we're often afraid to invest in our teams, uh, you know, both from a time standpoint, money standpoint. One of the most successful dentists that I personally know, he's, he's got a group that does between 20 and $30 million a year. Uh, every single one of his practices, every single Friday, two hours, they shut down and they do team training every single awesome. week. It's, I mean, honestly, it's incredible. And I've, I've thought about how I can implement this and I've dragged my feet because, uh, you know, we, we do training and meetings, you know, once or twice a month at most. Uh, but he's doing it two hours every single week. So I just something to be said about, I think, uh, you know, your team is truly your greatest resource and they can be the, the biggest uh, you know, benefit or the biggest hindrance to your practice. If you're not invest, taking the time and money to invest in your team, it, it can really drag your practice down. I do Dwayne, then Hendrick. So go ahead, Dwayne, first. I one of my favorite things, one of my least favorite things, one of my team members bring a problem to me. It irritates the crap out of me, but I love when they bring me a problem and they bring me some solutions. Yeah. And you know what? They write the procedure. They write the policy because it doesn't affect me. I don't give a dang how many side, yeah. how many two-sided copies you got to make for this booklet. You tell me what we're doing. Yeah. And when it, sometimes they do that stuff without me knowing, and I love that too. Yeah. Go ahead, Hendrick. Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the, just building on sort of team development is, 
You know, you need to be intentional behind your team development. So I actually recommend having a separate line item in your P&L that's dedicated specifically to team development. So actually setting aside money. Um, there was a, a recent uh, research article um, released by McKinsey, it's sort of one of the larger consulting firms, that said that the most successful businesses um, apportion at least 3% of their top line revenue to team development. So I would sort of recommend that having that intentionality behind it, otherwise it's very easy for it to fall behind, uh, by the wayside. So just being very, very intentional about how you develop your team. Um, and it's developing your team to the idea that can this person that I'm working with be trained and developed to the next two levels up from where they are. So that's what you actually want to, to think about when you develop your team is not the next level, but the level above that. So can my, um, for example, front desk receptionist, can she be trained and developed and have a training, an intentional training program in place to be a successful office manager? So again, you know, the key is intentionality behind training and, and really having the discipline to have that in your P&L. So we have 10 minutes left. We have time to probably go through one more question. And this was a, a, a subject that was approached earlier saying I kind of heated up here with Paul and, and Bob and them. And it's about you know DSOs and multiples and EBITDA. And if you go into any Facebook group, you listen to any podcast in dental right now, at some point during any, any look or listen, you're going to see EBITDA, multiples, DSOs, good or bad, evil or not, you're going to see it, right? So we're going this year. Our economic situation is weird. We're going into an election year. And all of us see that from different points of view. I've seen a couple of my practices on my system get bought. And I've seen it from the point of view of working with the doc as they're transitioning. I'm sure you've been on the purchasing side or seen more of it. All of you guys have a different point of view. And just from your point of view, going into 2024, what do you think the multiples are going to do? What do you think the opportunities for docs are going to be? And what do you think the behaviors of the of the DSOs coming in with the private equity money? How aggressive or not aggressive do you think they're going to be? So I'll start with Hendrix. This is your space. Yeah, definitely. Um, so with an increase in cost of capital, um, at the moment, what we're seeing on average are multiples of 8.2 times um, EBITDA. So what that really means is that it takes about eight years uh, to recover the, the investment. Um, and that was when we had interest rates, you know, in the sort of three, four uh, percent range. Now with those sort of almost doubling, we're, we're actually beginning to see the multiples drop to about six times EBITDA, which is... Uh, which is the normal area. So in, for those who don't know EBITDA, um, you can think about it as an equivalent for profit. So it's um, your profit for um, interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization, which are non-cash non items. Um, you know, I, what, what we're seeing is most DSOs continue to grow and increase the, their valuation until about the third or fourth turn, which means the, the third or fourth purchase. What we're seeing with a lot of the DSOs at the moment is that they're approaching their third or fourth turn, so they're actually just hitting a ceiling. Um, the only area that we're seeing outsized growth in terms of increased valuations is the specialty DSO space, and we're seeing up, upwards of 18 times multiples of EBITDA in that particular space. Um, I expect that to continue to rise. Um, I'm hearing rumors through the industry of one transaction that is looking at going for 20 times multiple of EBITDA. Um, but obviously, non-disclosure can't sort of say who, but um, you know it's really only in this uh, specialty DSO space, um, the multi-specialty DSO space especially. So I, I think that you know as the cost of capital it looks like it's beginning to come down a little now with interest rates beginning to stabilise, um, the expectation would be that you know we would maintain the uh, the valuations in that specialty DSO space. Um, yeah. 
Yes, this is definitely Hendrick's area now that I would want to weigh in on. Um, Bob and I had a heated discussion last night, a lovingly heated discussion last night. I, full disclosure, I'm a non-dentist who used to own seven dental offices. So, um, I'm buying my first right now as a non-dentist. Right. I've looked at a lot of practices. and trans- I think that if you hate DSOs, then general dentists have to get better at transitioning practices. The associateship buyout system is very flawed. Yep. You don't just become a two-doctor practice because you hired an associate. And I, I think that the way that works is is not really been fixed by our industry, and yet we take to Facebook to vent about what's happening with consolidation. And so I think that there's room for private practice and DSOs. I think they're, they both serve patients and they both serve our industry in different ways. Um, but if you are anti-DSO, then I say figure out how to transition practices better. That's great. It really makes sense. Dwayne? This is not my forte, so I'm going to pass. Okay, no Good, Kara. <laughs> um, this is not my forte either, but I do have practices that are both private practice and DSO practices. Uh, and I will say that the ones who are, are smaller group practices trying to grow, they struggle a lot because they don't have those systems in place. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how much somebody's willing to pay for your practice if the whole thing's going to fall apart as soon as they buy it. And they're going to look at that. They're going to come in and look at those systems if you're looking to transition, if you're looking to sell to a DSO, okay. if you're looking to, to grow a group practice. So you have to have that. That solid foundation starting with practice number one before you move to two and three and four and seven and all of the rest of them uh, and so that's that's what i would say is if, if you are looking to grow in 2024 um get your systems in place you have to yeah i'm, I'm gonna piggyback off uh dentists need to get better at transitioning uh i i think that's a uh, that's a very good point because if, if you guys think about it like any other business space business are valued on a multiple of ebitda but for some reason in the dental space, for whatever reason, they decided, okay, praxis are valued on a percentage of collections. That doesn't make any sense. Because if you collect a million dollars and your profit is $100,000, or you collect $1.5 and your profit is $50,000, why should that practice sell for more? Because it's actually, it's, you're, you're not buying a, a profitable business. So I, I think that's one of the biggest issues with selling to private practice dentists is that practices truly are not valued as they should be versus selling to a DSO where they're, where they're valued based on the profit of the business, which makes sense. Uh, you know, Hendrick went in a little bit about EBITDA. I think a, an important clarification that some dentists don't realize about EBITDA is you've got to take out what you would pay a dentist. So like if, if you're a solo dentist and you only pay yourself a set salary of $100,000 a year, but you're producing a million dollars of dentistry, then you know you're you're gonna think your EBITDA is more inflated than it actually is because you have to first pay yourself as a you have, you would have to pay yourself as if you would bring somebody else in to do the dentistry, which on average should be about thirty percent of your production. So, I just I think some good food for thought. I don't know what's gonna happen in the industry. You know, I, I have a friend who sold out his uh, group. I think probably too early, but he was worried about multiples coming down, which you know it seems like they are a little bit right now. What's gonna happen in the next five years, ten years? I don't think anybody truly knows. Um, but I, I think dentistry is a pretty safe profession. I think it's it's one that's sought after, and I don't think I don't think this is a downward trend that's going to continue. That's that's my personal take, at least. So, so I'm going to uh, pose a question to uh, Hendrick in a second. So I, I know this over the last four years. I'm new to dental, complete baby, just four years. I noticed that four years ago, seven practices get together. They're all geographic buddies, and they'd say we're going to tape this together and duct tape it and call it a DSO. And we're going to sell it for eight X, and then the DSO or the Pegs got really hip to it. They're like, no, we're not doing this. I've noticed that the structure they, they prefer now is like really scalable where it's like, 
really all centralized services, one hub location, and then a spoke from there to basically remote operatories to make to create efficiency. And that's truly a service organization, not on being duct taped together. Uh, I think that transition has kind of kind of frazzled some dentists that, that their plan was me and my six buddies are getting together and all of a sudden that carpet's pulled out from underneath them and now it's gonna take effort to create that again and then it planned for it properly. I think some of the negativity is coming from that. But Hendrik, I have a question for you. See that you have a specialty you're looking at right now and you can't talk about it where it's doing a really high multiple. Can you elaborate on which specialties it is? So I imagine it's not like basic ortho, but maybe like prosthodontists or, or surgical heavy, all next, all in four big EBITDA practices. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, so um, you know what we're seeing with those high EBITDA multiple um, DSOs, they're, they're what we I call the holy trinity. It's sort of oral surgery, pediatric dentistry, and um, orthodontics, um, all, all combined into one. So it, you know, one of the things that people tend to forget about specialty dentistry is that it's not recurring revenue, right? So you're an oral surgeon, somebody comes to see you, flick out your whizzies, they're not coming back to get the whizzies flicked out again. You know, it's, it's one and done. You know, similarly with orthodontics, you know, you get your teeth straightened once, that's it. They're, they're straightened. You know, people aren't coming back to get their, their teeth straightened. You know, similar with pediatric dentistry. You know, once they age out of the pediatric um, sort of space, they can't really go backwards now. So, you know, having that holy trinity where you can move um, people between your different specialties and optimize, you know, specialist uh, fee schedules and things like that, super, super important. Um, you know, one of the things that I just want to mention as well, a really good exercise that I encourage all of my clients to do every two years is something called a self-diligence assessment. What that is, it's looking at a due, dil a due diligence process as if you were selling your practice and you're actually looking at your practice from the position of a potential buyer. So, you know, you want to actually make sure that there's any little, you know, loopholes or little areas that um, can be improved are closed off so that when the time comes to sell, you don't want to be in a situation where the sale drags out. You know, there's, a, there's a rule in M&A that says that time kills deals. So we actually need to be able to move quickly when a transaction occurs. Uh, any, any transaction that takes longer than about, honestly, 90 days is unlikely to, to, to move through. I have something to add. Yeah. On, on the buyer side, so a lot of times the sellers aren't super concerned about their HR. They clean stuff up just enough and put a Band-Aid on it so that whenever somebody comes in to buy it, it's now their problem. Except I get the buyer whenever it is their problem. And oftentimes I'll hear things from clients, new clients coming on board saying, I bought a practice last Monday and I'm going to go meet the team next week. And I'm like, so you just hired people you've never met. That sounds like that's going to end very well. Um, and, and sometimes it does. And oftentimes it doesn't. Uh, oftentimes within the first 30 to 60 days, things start to fall apart because they made the mistake of not having a, a, their own advocate, not having a buyer representative versus somebody who's a dual rep broker. Um, they made the mistake of not meeting the team beforehand or not looking at the, the right documents, the right processes, not having any time in the office. Um, they just bought a practice because it was a great price. And they really wanted to be a practice owner. And so from the, the buyer perspective, I think they need to take some more time on that as well uh, and really follow through and make sure they get their own advocate because they're the ones that are stuck with the deal at the end of the day. Do you guys have any closing uh, statements before we close off? No. All right. Well, I want to thank our panel for being here today. It's a really diverse panel. You guys were awesome. Thanks for making the trip down here and, and dealing with the desert heat in this room. Um, thank you guys all for having us. And Thanks, have guys. a wonderful day. And check out our podcast. Oh, yeah, Dental Unfiltered. <laughs> yeah, that's